afternoon and welcome to Securing the Expanded Attack Surface Created by a Remote Workforce, a health system CIO media Inc. production sponsored by iGel. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the editor-in-chief of Health System CI, and I will be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. You can send in your questions or comments at any time in the Q&A box, and we'll take those later in the program. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, first we're going to go about 35 to 40 minutes with our main panel discussion featuring Chuck Christian, CTO at Franciscan Health, Christopher Friends, CISO and AVP of IT Security at Mount Sinai South Nassau, and Chris Feeney, Healthcare Workflow Specialist with iGel. So let's jump right in. Lots of good stuff to talk about today. Chuck, let's start with you. Can you give us an overview of your organization and your role? Uh, sure, happy to. I'm the uh, vice president and CTO for Franciscan Health. We're a 12, 13 hospital system uh, with about uh, 350 to 375 locations, depending upon how you count them, uh, throughout uh, Indiana, Illinois, and uh, southern Michigan. Very good, Chuck. Thank you, Chris. Chris Friends. Sorry, I got to be clear. <laughs> I'm Chris Friends. I'm the AVP of IT Security for Mount Sinai South Nassau, which is a hospital system in Long Island, New York. Very good. All right, Chris Feeney. Uh, greetings, everybody. Uh, I work for iGel Technology. We are an endpoint operating system, uh, and my role specifically has been uh, in our partner development um, organization. But I came to iGel after almost 13 years at Invervada spending many times in the healthcare sector, uh, watching and seeing how those uh, folks did their did their work, uh, both in the clinical setting and the outpatient setting, but also, uh, disclaimer, I've been a remote worker since 2005, so the balance of user convenience and security has been top of mind for me for many years to try to figure out what is that right thing, so I'm looking forward to today's conversation. Very good. All right, Chuck, we're going to start with you. Describe some of the challenges around securing a remote workforce. Well, let's see, how much time do we have? <laughs> so, uh, well, actually, you know, at Franciscan, we've had uh, a body of folks that work remote for quite some time. Our coders uh, have been remote for many, many years. And so we were pretty well positioned. But as when COVID hit, uh, we moved about 6,000 people to remote work. Uh, in about two and a half weeks. Uh, fortunately, we had started working on some of the technologies that will allow that transition pretty quickly. But some of the, th the challenges that we ran into is uh, you're, you have to deal with people's uh, own home networks. Uh, and you know most of the services that are out there now is all wireless. Uh, there are very few people have uh, CAT6 uh, in their house. And so then you have a variety of equipment uh, and then the one thing that that we were working on is standing up uh, an expanded VPN service. We had one service, which was a very small number of licenses, about 1,200, uh, and we didn't have capacity. So we very quickly, we had already started testing uh, you know, Global Protect, which is part of the our firewalls, uh, the Palos firewalls that we use. And so we had unlimited licenses for that. And so that was... a uh, 
a real plus. And so I've always said I'd rather be lucky than good looking. And I got my wish uh, is that, you know, we were fortunate we were standing uh, that solution up and teams at the same time, uh, because trying to use uh, uh, some of the other things that we had just wouldn't have worked. And so I think dealing with uh, remote folks, uh, folks that had never worked remote before, uh, and uh, ensuring, you know, because some, a lot of people wanted to just, let me just remote into my desktop. Uh, and we said no. Uh, and I think one of the biggest things uh, for us from an infrastructure standpoint is we have a really great re working relationship with our security team. Uh, and, you know, we stood up some every evening uh, after five, after 5.30, kind of gather everybody together uh, what challenges are we having today? And we really worked as a really great team in order to, uh, you know, address the issues that were coming at us hard and fast. And so that, you know, for me, you know, the challenges were, you know, was speed, how quickly we needed to do this and ensuring that we secured uh, endpoints that were, even though they were our assets, uh, they were not sitting on the first part of their network is uh, was not secured. So we have to secure the assets as well as once they uh, securely connect back into us. All right, very good. Lots to dig into there. Um, Chris, friends? I would definitely agree with what was said. And I think speed was one of the, the major factors was how fast you had to make the transition to remote work, to telehealth and to various technologies. And I think one of the things the pandemic really showed was um, how useful IT investment could be. Because I think one of the big disparities was how difficult it was to scale for remote work, largely depending on how much IT investment possible had made previously. I think hospitals that had invested heavily in IT and security were able to scale pretty securely, scale pretty rapidly. Hospitals that had less robust investments in information technologies had a much more difficult time. Um, like, so for example, in the hospital I'd worked for during the start of the pandemic, uh, we had a fairly robust VDI deployment. We had uh, done zero trust uh, with the VDI deployment. And once COVID hit, we were able to securely scale pretty easily. Um, it's just a matter of uh, limitations of server capacity. Uh, but the, the infrastructure for doing remote work and for doing remote work securely was already in place prior to the pandemic. So it made it much less of a challenge for us than it was for a lot of other organizations. But uh, I, I think speed was the big thing. And um, the thing that worries me about as a security professional was I think for a lot of organizations, how quickly they rolled out these technologies without necessarily um, testing them because at that point, the pandemic and the patient safety needs were critical. Um, I think it's going to leave hospitals vulnerable for a long time to come in a lot of ways they may not realize yet. Interesting. Very good. Uh, Chris Feeney, your thoughts. So at IGEL, what we saw uh, referencing, you know, the early part of the pandemic was uh, companies uh, trying to secure the assets. Uh, were they having them send the devices home? How could they manage them? Um, and and also, can we find devices? If if not, are we going to allow the end user's home computer with who no heck knows what is on it uh, to come in on VPN and access our network? Um, or are we going to provide uh, something that we would be able to manage and control that user experience? Um, and so that was one of the biggest shifts we saw was uh, uh, an uptick in that. Um, and then, you know, what was interesting is is the, the fact that many folks, you know, were like this picture I have, we were used to going into the office, that, that city, that those, those buildings behind me, essentially. 
now they were trying to figure out how to work from home in a scenario where they just weren't used to it. Uh, some of us have been doing that remote work for, for years. It wasn't really a shift at all, but that transition, and then of course, throw in the fact that help desk calls, I'm having trouble. Can you remote in and see what the user is experiencing uh, and troubleshooting and figuring out if it's just, you know, the home Wi-Fi is, is an issue or they, uh, they just, something's wrong, whatever. And so those were some of the challenges, being able to have the ability to provide a good user experience. Uh, we, we also saw them rolling out technologies that may not have been fully tested as, as Chris friends are, are mentioned earlier. And so, um, and uh, I, I think that that kind of covers the gamut. Uh, there's much more we could certainly dive into. All right, well, let's move on. We'll definitely follow up with some of that stuff. Um, <clears throat> Do you allow remote employees to use their own devices? If so, what additional measures have to be taken to secure those endpoints? Uh, Chris, friends? We do not actually. So we have a policy against allowing personal devices on our corporate networks. Uh, we force basically users um, through a VDI solution. So if they want to remote in from home or um, do any kind of BYOD, it's basically forces them to connect to a um, you know, virtual desktop infrastructure structure first, that the virtual desktop infrastructure can be used to um, access the, the rest of the network. It's a way of providing a layer of segmentation between the, uh, the personal device and the corporate network. So it's not something that we allow. Okay, Chuck? Yeah, agreed. That's exactly our approach. Uh, I, I have a bunch of equipment at home and they won't even let me uh, uh, connect my own equipment because we have to secure it. It has to be one of our images. And uh, we we have a virtual desktop infrastructure uh, policy as well. If we have folks that are going to use their, and one of the things I'm trying to move to, particularly for our contractors and, and people that are working remote, is you know they can use their own equipment, but they have to use you know a virtual desktop in order to communicate with all of our assets. And uh, we also have used some offshore uh, uh, consulting work, uh, and uh, we're we geofence everything. So they have to come in uh, and bounce into a server in the U.S. before they can, uh, you know, get into our system. Uh, Chris Feeney. So IGEL specifically uh, does not allow personal devices. Uh, they uh, corporate provides that. Uh, we actually are beginning to roll out uh, Windows uh, Virtual Desktop, or excuse me, Azure Virtual Desktop. Forgot the name change there for a second. Um, and testing that out. Um, I personally use an iGel device, uh, and I just remote uh, into office.com, and and uh, or I can connect to my uh, corporate laptop, just sort of REP to it, and use it as a VDI if I wanted to. So, uh, but it is a managed device essentially uh, that iGel controls. Um, but as far as me getting my own personal device at like Best Buy, that's that's not allowed. Uh, Chris Feeney, what, you heard what, what Chris Franz and Chuck said about the way they're doing it. What are you seeing from other customers that you deal with? Are they so, similar? Uh, yeah, so very much so. Um, you know, it's it's that zero trust, you know, is, is really kind of hit home. I think uh, uh, certainly um, eyes were open with the solar winds attack. Uh, the, the, that was huge. And to the point where the federal government mandated changes there regardless and so it's it's going in that direction and so what we also saw was 
uh, and have seen certainly is um, you think about teams, for example, I think uh, the CEO of Microsoft, Satya, basically said they saw like two years worth of development happen in like six months or three, whatever, just have rapidly, quickly that thing and being adopted. Um, so those collaboration tools have become a must have. Uh, being able to do things like this and getting work done, that has become a must have. Uh, very similar to years ago when you start, if you're traveling, you go to the hotel. If you didn't have Wi-Fi or, or high-speed internet, you were leaving the hotel. You were going to find somebody else who did. And it was it was just becoming a must-have. It used to be dial-up. Now it was just, you know, Wi-Fi or whatever. It's, it's People expect it. And so uh, rolling out those technologies. But but more of the, the really key thing is uh, we've always been talking about the year of VDI. It just keeps going down but we really saw an uptick in the adoption of a cloud-based solution or um, rapid expansion of an existing on-prem VDI solution or, or hybrid approach. Um, and so uh, IGEL has been able to help because we can get you to any of those environments more specifically from a secure device. And so that, um, that has definitely taken off, uh, but it has at the end of the day, regardless of what you're connecting into, if the remote user uh, if you don't have security around it, but the user experience is poor, they will reject the solution and they'll either A, go with the shadow IT solution that you don't want happening, um, or they'll just, you know, try to go find some other place to work that maybe offers a better experience. All right, very good. Next question. Uh, Chuck, we're going to start with you. IT professionals have always worked to balance security and usability. Has that gotten more difficult in today's remote work environment? Are there measures you need to institute that slow employees down? And how do you convince, if so, how do you convince them these are necessary? Well, there's a lot to unpack in that question, Anthony. So uh, I think there's always, uh, you know, it's, it is the it is the trick to balance security and usability, particularly when we are dealing, working in a healthcare setting, uh, because, uh, you know, the the clinicians and the providers they just want to do their job uh and you know the, the getting to the information and how they get that information uh you know making sure that it's secure is really not something that they they're, they're aware of but it's not something they they think about they just want to get to the information and do their job in order to do that so uh that's really not a uh, an issue from a remote standpoint, but if you think about it for a moment, that every one of our locations uh, are remote from the data center, uh, but we control part of that because we have physical uh, connect, you know, wireless, uh, wired connectivity uh, uh, to them. But uh, the remote staff, it's really not any more difficult because you, you've heard Chris, uh, friends, and I both mentioned that we're using virtual desktop environments. And so those are running on infrastructure, uh, either in the cloud, uh, that's our environment that we can control the security over and we can control the, the GPOs and everything else that goes along with how that's configured. Uh, the same thing would go whether it's uh, a virtual desktop that's actually running on a VM farm sitting in our data center. So uh, it's those uh, type of things. And the image I use on my desktop uh, which is actually my laptop that's sitting in my office right now in a uh, uh, it's hooked up to everything it's the same one i take home and so it i we secured exactly the same way the only difference is when i get home i'm connecting securely with a vpn connection rather than uh, and then we're 
we're looking at uh, the possibility of implementing an always-on VPN. That means when I, as soon as I fire up my laptop, it connects to the organization on the back end. Uh, and the other thing that we've done is we've removed the possibility or the capability of allowing people to um, connect to their uh, uh, personal like Outlook or Gmail and that kind of stuff. If I'm on the corporate network, I can't even get to it. Uh, if I'm on my laptop and it's connected to uh, our, you know, the, our, uh, our VPN solution, I can't get to it. If I need, to, if I want to do it on my laptop, I have to get off of it. So uh, it, it's there's way that we secure it, and it's no different in my home than it is when I'm in the office. So the experience is very, very similar. Very good, Chris. Friends. Rather than kind of reiterate what he said, I'll take it from a slightly different angle. I think the, the key for answering this question is to remember that at the end of the day in healthcare, cybersecurity is a key component of patient safety. Uh, one of the things is, is that anything that causes an interruption in availability of a system is something that can lead to adverse outcomes to a patient because it leads to delays in care. And I think the really important thing that's missing from a lot of the security equations today is that um, we don't consider the, I guess, the clinical risk when we factor risk from a cybersecurity standpoint. We often think about risk in terms of um, you know, what an asset's worth, what kind of data is on the asset, how exposed is the asset, traditional cybersecurity metrics. We don't think about things in terms of the risk to patient care. And I think what's becoming increasingly important in healthcare cybersecurity is to begin to wrap the clinical context around a lot of the security decisions we make. So for an example, let's take a case of two CT machines. You have a CT machine in an offsite clinic that provides outpatient care and it goes down. It's an inconvenience, but it's not a huge deal to the operation of the hospital because you reschedule a few patients and that's the um, you know, end result of the outage. You take that same CT machine in an emergency room setting and now if it goes down, it's a huge problem for the hospital because you can't triage stroke patients and um, the hospital may have to go on diversion because of that. And I think increasingly we need to begin to wrap the security decisions we make with this kind of clinical context. I think that requires a partnership with clinicians. And I, I think that helps um, the clinicians gain a better appreciation for why certain security exists and makes them less resistant to efforts like this. But I also think it's important from the IT side because we need to make sure that we're protecting the systems that are most key to the operation of the hospital. And there's no way to do that without putting this kind of clinical context in scope. So I think the really important way to answer this question is um, to find that commonality between what IT security wants and what the physicians want, which at the end of the day is the same goal of keeping patients safe. And I think a lot of that is dependent on IT increasingly speaking the language of physicians. So for example, if I begin to talk about denial of service, the average physician doesn't care. But at the same time, they really do care about the concept of availability and having access to PACs and to the EHR and other systems you need to treat the patient because they understand the patient safety impacts of that. So I think a lot of these security measures that we need to push through, um, you can get a lot of buy-in from the organization as long as you can begin to speak the language of the physician and wrap um, the clinical context around why you're doing what you're doing and how it's going to keep the patient safe. And that kind of um, eliminates some of the barriers that you have traditionally seen where clinicians don't want certain types of security. Well, and so and I'm going to pile on to what Chris said and, and offer something up from a clinical standpoint. So I mentioned earlier that, the, you know, the, the clinical staff typically, you know, they want to get and do their job. They don't really uh, want to worry about how do we secure the workstations and that kind of stuff until it impacts them. And, and I used to uh, have some conversations with a friend of mine who was actually my internal medicine doc. 
about privacy. Uh, and it wasn't until he got a phone call one day uh, from uh, the uh, Office of Civil Rights because someone had uh, filed a complaint about the fact that he was having a conversation. He, he did some work in the rehab group. He was having a conversation with a patient in the gym and all the other patients heard the conversation. So one of the patients filed a complaint. And so after they had a, he had a conversation with uh, the Office of Civil Rights, he became our advocate for uh, privacy and those type of things. So when those security and privacy events occur to those individuals, uh, it's it's then when they get the you know they, they actually get the attention uh, and start understanding what the the true impacts of those type of things and and Chris I I do like your uh, your CT uh, metaphor you know if it's sitting out in a uh, routine clinic it's not a big deal if it's in the emergency room it is a big deal. Great points, Chris Feeney. Yeah, just echo a lot of that. I I, I learned quite a bit from my uh, my years in the healthcare space there, uh, learning that I mean at the end of the day, security has to be invisible to the user. They, they just need to be able to walk up if they're treating patients. You want to give them an experience that uh, allows them to basically do what they went to med school for, or or special training, whatever it was, and not really think about the fact that you've done everything you can to make sure that that. Uh, device that they're on has been secured and it's not vulnerable. Um, some of the challenges that we have actually seen in, but before I go there, one of the things is, is, is at iGEL is an endpoint operating system designed really from the ground up with security in mind. The key thing is, and what we've been working on um, more specifically is uh, providing and the ability to do as many workflow the uh, configurations as possible from that device. A lot of those workflows are driven from a VDI or a Windows-based experience or app delivery type thing. Um, but really thinking through what is that user going to walk up and be able to do and not have to worry about whether the machine is operational or not. Um, and we have literally seen situations where leveraging technologies that were already in place, uh, deployed, um, Windows machines getting attacked, taken down, the IGEL device is staying up um, and operational or quickly bypass uh, a device that was compromised to get up and running to either a backup operation or whatever like that. And so, but at the end of the day, it has to be usable for that user. Um, and so that they, to Chris friends or point earlier, patient care is at stake. We have literally seen situations where customers had to send patients to essentially their their competitors because they were down. They could not treat patients. They had to send them over to another facility, different uh, health system, because they they just couldn't handle it and they were dealing with an IT security issue. So um, preventing that so that patients at the end of the day can be treated, whether it's in the ED or in a surgery center or outpatient clinics or uh, triage, whatever it might be, uh, the, that's really the, the core focus of what we're trying to per help. Very good. All right. Next question. Let's start with uh, Chris Friends on this one. How do you educate remote employees on the measures they need to take to keep the organization secure? Do you need to trust them more in a remote work environment than you did when they were working in the building? Do you worry they let their guard down at home? Now, from what Chuck is saying, it's a very similar experience because of the, the VDI and the VPN. It's a fairly similar experience. 
Um, but your thoughts, is it is it in your mind similar now because of the technologies or is it different in that they have to think differently from they have to think more about security when they're at home? In the case of our hospital, I would agree with Chuck, it's also similar. It's probably not the case every hospital though. Um, in terms of training, we handle training from several different perspectives. One is we um, do constant phishing training. So every month, everybody employed gets a phishing email. We uh, provide training based on whether the person click, click. We do weekly security awareness messages where every week we have a scam of the week where we keep people informed of the, the latest threats. Uh, during cybersecurity awareness month, we also um, have basically daily training where we provide um, people videos to watch and security messaging every day. We also have some gamification of that where we have little contests and stuff to encourage people to participate. Um, you know, for example, you might get a gift card if you spot the most fishes that month or, or something along those lines. Um, we also have um, annual security awareness training for, for HIPAA compliance. So we do quite a bit in the security awareness space. Um, overall, I do think it is pretty impactful. But I would kind of go back to, I guess, the, the, the previous points about the, the clinical context. I think one of the important things is to really um, get the buy-in from the physicians and the other clinicians in the organization is to stress that, that um, the reason you're doing all the security and the reason security awareness is important is at the end of the day, it is a patient safety issue. And I think the more and more that gets across, the, the more the physicians and other clinicians are willing to participate in that because they understand the rationale for it. I, I think the key in security awareness is to get everybody to realize that security really is the responsibility of everyone in the organization. It's not just the responsibility of me and my staff because we have IT security in our title. It's really something that everybody has to play a role in the organization. And the more effectively everyone does, the more secure the organization is going to be. Excellent. Chuck? Well, and I, would, I would agree everything that Chris said. The only other thing that you know, has come to my mind is in, when you're working in a hospital or you know, in our building, which is not connected to a hospital, it's a security environment. So you kind of know the people that are wandering around. Uh, and, you know, if I want to get up and go get some coffee, I may or may not lock my workstation because it's a, it's a secure environment. The only thing that, uh, that, you know, we've made clear on because people are working from home is they need to have a defined space uh, that uh, everybody's not, you know, kind of wandering by. And if you do walk away from your uh, workstation, lock it. Uh, and so, you know, the kids can't get on it and surf the internet. Uh, your wife can't get on Amazon and order some stuff uh, and, uh, and inadvertently see something they shouldn't see. So I, I think that it, it's, you know, like uh, Chris said, is it goes along with the education. And I absolutely agree that that security uh, is everybody's job, just like patient safety is everybody's job. Uh, and you can't relegate it to a small group of folks uh, in a, one department of the organization. We have to be aware of what we're doing. Uh, and it's, it's like putting cars on the highway. Uh, everybody has to be worried about everybody else's safety. You can't have one person worrying about it and everybody else driving the wrong way on a one-way street. Uh, but Chuck, it is interesting. So there, you know, there is some home specific information, mostly, as you said, around who's physically going to have access to that yeah. device. You know, And you mentioned in the workplace, you know, you need a badge to tap in to get into certain areas. Certain areas are secure, more secure than others. But in the home, we have no idea who's walking around. Doesn't have to be just family members, could be children's friends. You have to, you said it has to have some sort of dedicated space and you walk away. So that's education. Again, education, yep. education. Yeah, yep. very good. And, and, and it goes along. We actually have a, a uh, 
an agreement uh, that remote employees uh, actually have to re read and, and here are the things that you agree that you will be doing in your home uh, if you're going to work remote. And so they sign that agreement. Uh, but you know, we, we don't have a method of going to their home and audited. I'm not going to go out and knock on the door and say, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, uh, it's the security police. I want to check your workspace. Uh, but we have the right to do that if we choose to. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Ba based upon that. And I, that's the same agreement that we used years ago when I was uh, at Good Sam because we let the coders and the transcriptionists go home, you know, uh, over a decade ago. Chris Feeney, your thoughts? So internally, IGEL has an LMS that we use, and our security team does um, have requirements for security training. Um, oftentimes, our 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 you know our security team will send out alerts. Uh, we've been experiencing uh, phishing attacks or attempts or whatever. Uh, we have an internal email that we can, if we suspect something, we can just forward it on to say, hey, I think this is. Um, and some people may be more aware of it. I've been, you know, in the security realm for a long time, so I'm, I'm much more attuned to that. But we do have sort of that internal education and required training. Um, and then, of course, uh, as I mentioned, they there is some avenue of trust. I mean, majority of our workforce is remote, uh, even before the pandemic. Uh, and so there was an avenue of trust there. We, we have information that you're going to see and, you know, um, and... I, but I do think it, it's that balance, right? That that trust. If I am given a a user experience that that works and uh, the security is, I'm going to use the word friendly, uh, and not something that's abnormal. I mean, acceptable, right? So, um, for example, everybody's kind of used to that mobile app push experience, right? It's not intrusive. I have a phone with me. I log in, and I'm going to get prompted and and you know it's not really that intrusive to access and get to my workspace essentially um versus one for example when i was at a um i was in michigan and i went to a show and i saw i was talking to, to police officers and i said show me what your user experience is like and he turned his laptop on and 15 minutes later it was finally operational in a police car and i'm like are you kidding me and he had to go through all these steps just to get to a place where he could actually work and I said, well, come see me. Let's talk through some of this because I think there's maybe some ideas here. We can maybe streamline some of that a little bit. But all these measures were put in place and it made his job or anybody that was in that field a little bit more challenging, especially if they're dealing with a situation. And you imagine in healthcare, they're trying to solve a problem. Somebody comes in from an accident or whatever like that. And then some security thing prompts them and just breaks their train of thought. These are things that, you know, have to be thought through and whether they're remote or even in inside the hospital, but education certainly goes a long way. And the reminders, uh, the big picture, what are we, this is all about? Patient safety has to be patient at the end of the day. That's what we're trying to protect. And so Chris, I think you've just come up with a new use case for Improvata's tool in the police force. Tap your badge in, get it going and, uh, and tap your badge as you get out of the car. Just kidding. Yeah, they, yeah they, they, that was, they used to do that. They, they, I think they're beginning to refocus, but it was, uh, I have some uh, family members in the uh, law enforcement sector. So that was top of mind for me at the time. So, 
Very good. All right. Next question. How do you handle work-related printing at home? I've heard this is a very <laughs> tricky issue. When you, people, I see people start to have little spasms when you talk about yeah. printing at home. Chuck? Yeah. Uh, it, well, it, you know, I'll, I'll give you the good Six Sigma answer. It depends. Uh, <laughs> we, we have a policy that says you cannot print from home. Uh, but we do have some folks that their jobs require them, like risk and legal and, and that kind of stuff. And so there are incidences where we provide uh, equipment for their home, and it depends upon their role. But routinely, uh, printing at home is not allowed. But, you know, uh, I've actually had folks tell me, well, you need to let me do it because I'm taking, you know, what I need to print and emailing it to myself at my other laptop on my personal computer that I'm printing it from home. So, you know, we discourage it. Uh, there are ways around it. Uh, it's impossible to police. And so what we try to do is manage it with policy. And I, I actually, my office is about 40 minutes from my home. Uh, I will save stuff up when I know that I'm coming into the office and I'll just send the print job to the big MFD that's sitting out here in, in the uh, team space. Uh, it'll be collated, stapled, ready for me when I walk in the door and I just pick it up. Chris Friends? We do block remote printing as well. It's something that um, we, you know, we don't encourage. Uh, as Chuck mentioned, there's occasionally the case for an exception for certain roles, but for the most part, we do everything we can to block remote printing because um, it is a risk for the organization and it's something that's very hard to control because you can't control somebody leaving that pile of papers on the subway or in a cab or something else. And um, it's all risk. And it's in the days of um, you know, EHR access and people having the ability to access this stuff from home and remotely, it um, you know, makes a lot less sense because there are ways you can look up the information without putting the organization at risk. So it is something that we tend to discourage and um, block wherever possible. I wonder if that's this if this is sustainable i mean in terms of as people you know continue to work from home i mean printing it can be very important like you said there's exceptions but is there can you see a solution to this that will allow people to work and print from home that that will take some of this away or is it just the nature of it becomes on a physical piece of paper and that cannot then we we never know what happens with that I think it's the um, nature of the problem, but I think also too with um, techno technology improving and additional ways to access the information, I think there's less need than ever before to print for most roles. Is it's because if I'm a physician, I don't need to print out a patient's chart to read it at home to to further analyze it. I can now um, you know log into my VDI desktop and open the HR software and look at that same chart. So no. there's not as much of an explicit need to print it as there was in the past. I just think it's a personal preference thing. So depending on what I'm going to read, if I'm going to read anything, usually if it's longer, I'll want to print it out. Uh, just And then I'll just, that's the way I want to consume it. Uh, but Chuck, do you see this as a, an issue that's going to need more work? Well, you know, I, I think that I, I agree with, with Chris is that uh, you, you, right now you can't tell what's being printed out if it contains PHI or if it's an, uh, a Gartner article. I'd love to print Gartner articles out uh, and, you know, or uh, a stuff, you know, maybe a class report or something that I'm, I'm studying and I want to put notes in the page. I'm an right. old guy, so right. uh, I like to do that. But uh, the thing about it is, uh, it, it's like Chris said, if, if I print something out, I, you know, the hospital loses control, total control of it because you can't just throw it in the garbage can. Uh, I don't know how many people have actual shred bins. Anthony, you may have one at your house, but uh, 
uh, I, you know, I don't have a shred bin at my house. My wife has a shredder, uh, but uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to walk down and, and shred it. it. It's 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 too easy to slip up. And so mm-hmm. just having a general policy around you, you're not allowed to print uh, removes some of the, the, the risk profile for the organization. Chris Feeney, any thoughts? Well, it's, I think I would echo that. Um, uh, having that base policy in general, uh, for various reasons, our being healthcare, we have a lot of regulations and security. Re- printing at home is a is a non-starter. Exceptions will be reviewed as needed, but you know by default, uh, that would be your certainly a recommendation based on all kinds of things. But it really comes like where does the information reside? You know, it, can it be downloaded to the endpoint? or the device being used at home. And then somehow that shadow IT kind of then approach of now I can print it and go bypass those policies. I mean, there's lots of security tools out there that can be used to kind of, you know, control those things. We have printing partners that can provide solutions that may be able to help solve for that. I'm not an expert on all the printing options out there, but I think I uh, would definitely echo with what Chuck and Chris have I said, you know, by default, printing at home is a non-starter. If you need it, let's have a conversation. Why? All right. All right. So sometimes I'm wrong, even though I don't think I'm wrong, but occasionally I could be wrong. That's fine. Uh, you're, you're a legend, my friend. <laughs> I like to print, but um, understood. Okay. Let's do, our, uh, this is a great segment. Ask a co-panelist. Let's find out what our panelists are curious about hearing from each other. So Chris Feeney, let's start with you. Uh, do you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? I'd like to hear uh, from both on this particular question. Sort of, you've mentioned uh, some of the infrastructure that was either already there or being deployed at the onset of the pandemic. Uh, more specifically, your plans for adopting either a DAS solution, uh, public cloud hosted, or a hybrid approach, expanding VDI, that type of thing. Um, certainly toss a coin who wants to answer that, but just your, your approach and, and strategy around that. Let's go Chris friends first. Well, we had actually been deploying VI for a while in the hospital. So it wasn't a new initiative. Um, it was actually an initiative to basically improve on patient care, improve turnaround times. Cause one of the things we noticed is, um, a great advantage. VDI, for instance, is the follow me desktop. So a doctor can log in at any station in the hospital and have their EHR and other records follow them. So for a lot of other reasons, we had been deploying um, VDI, but when the pandemic hit, it also provided a really easy way to scale the remote access because our remote access was basically, um, you establish a connection, you go to a VDI desktop, and that grants you access to the HR and other applications. So it just became a question of scale at that point and that functionality. So it kind of goes back to my earlier point. I think um, hospitals that had heavily invested in technology prior to COVID did really well. And I think um, at scaling and dealing with the challenges, I think hospitals that had less of an IT investment had a much harder time. Chuck Christian. Well, I mean, I, I would agree. Uh, before I joined Franciscan, they they had a, a project uh, of deploying VDI that didn't go very well. And so there wasn't anything active when I joined on, a little over three years ago. And so we've been running, uh, you know, it's it's kind of, the, there's a broad swath of options out there. You, you know, we can run it, you know, the virtual environment in our own data centers. Uh, we, you know, and then there's there's all kinds of options from the cloud. 
Uh, and so we've been running some proof of concepts because some of the options have, you know, pretty good, uh, you know, management platforms or management planes. Others, not so much. You have to do a bunch of stuff with scripting and the, those type of things. And so we've been running some proof of concepts, you know, trying to find that sweet spot because I absolutely agree with Chris Friends is that, you know, one of the the, the, the things I want to do is provide a, a different experience for our our customers where they log on in the morning, it could be from their home. Uh, and then when they get to the office, uh, to the physician's office and then go to the hospital and make rounds, their desktop just follows them. You know, the same thing for the nursing staff when they're going from patient one patient room to another. Tap your badge uh, and your, the, where you were in the last patient's room, your workstation is uh, uh, just right there with you because it, it will enhance their workflows. Mm -hmm. And so we're uh, actively and uh, have budgeted uh, in order to move a, a portion of our team. I don't think the entire organization workflow will benefit from a virtual desktop environment. I think that we have to be very uh, careful about how we do that because uh, some of the things that we call knowledge workers and stuff, they need the power at uh, on their desk because they're even at the best uh, uh, virtual machines in the cloud. There's a there's a little lag, uh, and some folks uh, even I complain about it sometimes when I'm using my virtual desktop is that uh, I'll you know I'll type and you know then there's a a second not a second you know they're microseconds but it's different than. Uh, working on an uh, actual machine. So we need to make sure about which environments uh, that we, we put that in. Very good. All right, Chuck, do you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? Well, I mean, actually, I think, that, you know, they're both gentlemen, I'm very pleased and honored to be uh, on a, a panel. So, Anthony, thank you for asking me. So I, I guess the, the question I would ask is, you know, one of the things I've, I've found that the, the pandemic uh, – caused is we had to, uh, as you know, Chris and I both said, we had to move quickly. So what is it that you've learned during that process that you would have done differently now that we're on the other side of it, kind of, sort of? Chris Friends. That's a, definitely an interesting question. Um, I th think it was, the challenge actually wasn't so much on the remote access side. I think for us, the, the bigger challenge was all the um, internal changes had to be made because New York was actually one of the, the first states hit. It was one of the hardest hit and one of the earliest hit in the hospital and it, I mean in healthcare. And it, one of the challenge was, was actually all the internal changes had to happen to the organization. So creating all the additional capacity for beds and other stuff like that. And um, that's what we actually found most challenging was getting all the medical devices and all the supply chain issues. Even silly things like buying webcams and stuff turned out to be a huge issue. Um, so for us, it was, I guess, a lot of the challenges were more on the, the supply side. Not that we didn't have spares, but not spares to the level required to scale up, you know, that quickly. And um, that was, I guess, the importance of supply chains or something heavily illustrated for us. Chris Feeney? Um, not being in a role as, as our esteemed colleagues here, uh, I, I would just say uh, what we... Uh, what we basically saw was um, a lot of, you know, quick fixes that some panned out, some did not. Um, and um, looking back, I think uh, 
as as friends, Mr. Francis has, has referred to, those that had already uh, invested or had a user experience that relied on virtualization, uh, it was a very quick shift to just uh, to scale that up for more users, whether that was additional capacity or uh, leveraging the cloud, for example, as a as an option. Uh, we did see quite a bit of that. Uh, at the time that it occurred, I was actually covering federal, I was not really involved with healthcare, and I saw a shift on the federal government side to quickly adopt the cloud, uh, whether it was through VMware Citrix or just Microsoft in general. So, um, but the other thing was endpoint devices. You mentioned earlier supply chain issues. We saw quite a bit of that. I think um, what we saw com customers begin to realize was that we have to uh, think of this and they'd be looking, looking at all those things that were destined for the dumpster they were still usable machines and they began to rethink, okay, these are actually workable solutions. Let's put iGel on them and then either make them available in the office setting or send them home for the user. Uh, and now we can actually control that because it's a common operating system. And then we can get them into whatever workspace they're trying to, to deliver. Um, so it was a lot of, you know, sometimes it was stumbling, but it was other was other times just executing a plan they already had. They just needed to scale it for more capacity. Chuck, it sounds like a big a big lesson uh, that we can learn from this discussion today about everyone's experience is that you you you're playing with fire if you let a large degree of technical debt build up, because you are not going to be able to handle that next thing that comes. Right. Because people who did not allow for a lot of technical debt, people who were investing, were able to deal with this unseen thing, this unforeseen thing happening. So would that be a piece of advice you'd want to give out today? Is that for me, Anthony? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I absolutely agree. I mean, I think that, you know, part of our job in IT, and this has been something, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, is 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 and I've always you know, I have to think 18 to 24 months out. You know where where does the infrastructure need to be? You know I, I was a healthcare CIO for almost 30 years, and so uh, you know you know trying to create the strategies about where do we where does the infrastructure need to be uh, before it needs to be there? It's kind of like you know uh, Wayne Gretzky. You, you need to skate to where the puck's going to be, not where it is, and so you have to put the infrastructure in place. Uh, that's going to be necessary to handle tomorrow's uh, crisis. And those are the, you know, the basics, uh, you know, the, you know, the, the table stakes, you know, your wireless and network, uh, remote communications, how do you secure the network and those type of things. And so you have to invest in those. And those are, you know, interesting capital conversations when you're, you're trying to make a, you know, several million dollar investment in your wireless infrastructure and you have hospitals that are wanting to buy new surgical equipment and new CT scanners and things that actually generate revenue. So it's, it's a difficult conversation to have about, you know, it's a value proposition type of thing. So, I, you know, investing in that infrastructure is extremely important. Yeah, Chris, friends, it, it must be an interesting, interesting conversation when you could get pushback to the effect of, but it works. And you say, OK, it works today, mm -hmm. but it's not going to work in 18 to 24 months. Is that kind of how a conversation could go? Chris, friends. Oh, sorry. I had the rest of the question was for okay. me. 
It, it definitely can go that way. I, I think um, the important thing, again, is that, that partnership with the clinicians. And I think that's what helps have that conversation is um, the more you can show that your goals are aligned and that it's all about patient care and what you want to do. I think the easier it is to have that conversation. But in a lot of times, yes, definitely capacity planning, planning for the future is definitely critical. And I think the, the pandemic really, really illustrated that. Well, well, I'm talk, other, I'm, I'm, sorry, Chuck, Andrew. I'm talking about I'm I'm talking about conversations, not perhaps yeah. with the clinicians. I'm talking about with leadership that's got to approve your budget you're requesting. Yeah, absolutely. The thing the thing about it is is that the one thing that you know I think that you need to drive home is how long it takes to put some of this technology in place. Right. right. Uh, I'm wrapping up a a three year project to change out our phone system, going from seven different PBXs to one voice over IP solution. Took three years. Uh, I'm wrapping. I wrapped up a two year deployment of a replacement of two different instances of PACs uh, into one enterprise-wide solution for PACs. Uh, the same thing goes for our wireless access points. It took me over a year uh, to get the, all those replaced uh, in, uh, in each one of our facilities. And so it's a matter of, you know, it's, it's going to take a couple of years. We're working on, uh, in part, I'm working with partnership with our uh, Administrative Director of Clinical Engineering about a system-wide standardization of uh, cardiac monitoring. It's going to take us two or three years to get this totally in place because we have, you know, 13 different facilities that we're going to have to uh, change our hardware and you know, create the centralized. So it's it's about you know some things you can hurry, some things you just cannot. Uh, you know, and you know, I ask. Uh, I was asked once by my CEO, not here, but uh, at another organization, that says, well, well, you know, it's a computer, Chuck. Can't you get it to do that? And I said, absolutely. I can make them do anything with enough time and money. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Chris Feeney, uh, you want to address the idea of technical debt uh, in relation to our discussion today from your point of view? Certainly. Uh, I think it's, there are definitely organizations applications uh we, we talk about this the, the long tail of windows right applications that have been designed and, and architected and they continue to run but uh, the longer they are in place that debt begins to get increased further and further and then you get into a situation where maybe you how you are working remotely and you cannot access it for some odd reason um and the only option to make it usable is to come into the office, if that's even a feasible uh, a thing, um, or now you're looking at replacing it. And so uh, letting it build up, not being maintained or updated, that those types of things, those can certainly come back to haunt you later on. I think what's interesting, I think about this, you know, 20 years ago, plus we, we experienced as a, as a nation something that woke us up to, oh my gosh, you know, and then you started seeing, you know, if you see something, say something, right? We began to accept a different user experience walking into the airport and, and going through a little bit more increased scan. Uh, we've all now experienced globally this this onset of that's forced that forced people to work from home. And people began to realize that I wasn't used to that, but it actually made me more productive. I enjoyed it, my lifestyle, I mean, various things, and it's totally doable. And I think it is. I hope it's given uh, folks like Chuck and Chris the opportunity to say, here's the art of what's possible. We can continue to maintain. We can continue to do that, which means that technical debt conversation 
hopefully will become less and less because they realize that, okay, we can shift and we can move and we can advance further into or shift from a CapEx model to an OpEx model and make it more financially acceptable to, to implement some of these newer solutions that will help, help us to continue to maintain and have a great you know, patient experience at the end of the day. And, and uh, just, yes, just, sir. Go ahead. Go just ahead. one one more point. I Please. think you know, having worked at several different organizations, is that uh, the culture of the organization and how they view IT. Uh, some organizations view IT as a cost that needs to be maintained, rather than something you need to make in strategic investments in. And I think that that's a a value statement that uh, every person in IT. Uh, used to need uh, uh, that needs to have. I mean, I, uh, Chris, friends. I mean, I'm sure that he would agree that it wasn't until you started seeing uh, organizations, particularly in healthcare, started getting hit with ransomware and all the other security-related instances, and the millions of dollars this was costing the organizations to clean up and respond to that funding for security actually got uh, increased. Uh, and so I remember back in Y2K, I, we spent some money to mitigate some risk. And then uh, the, on the, the the day after the you know the January one of the year 2000, we had a steering committee meeting, and the CEO says, "Okay, Chuck, what happened last night?" I said, "Absolutely nothing." And he said, "Well, why did we spend that money?" I said, "Because we got the outcome that we anticipated. Nothing happened. That's what you wanted, right?" Yeah, exactly. Chris, friends, did you uh, want to mention anything there? My parting advice, and it's not directly related to the panel, but just when you, with security, you don't ever assume you're secure. I'm a really big advocate for security testing. I think it's a mistake a lot of organizations make is they deploy some controls and they assume they work. Um, I, I would encourage organizations to actually test their security more often, try to continually validate that their security is actually working. Because when you put a lot of security controls to the test, you'll be surprised how often they fail. And I think organizations need to be a little more proactive about identifying that. So that way they're aware of those shortcomings and can remediate them before an attacker points them out for them. I think that's a great point. And I think we could do a whole webinar on that. And I think maybe we will. So uh, we'll look at that. Uh, Chris Feeney, uh, final thought. Actually, I was I just listening to Mr. Friend's talk there. I, I was kind of echoing this, that, that same idea, you know, just uh, you can never let your guard down from a security perspective, uh, you know, Put your solutions out there, but but maintain that vigilance um, and try to find the right balance with uh, with that user uh, experience. Right. It, it, it I go back to making security invisible, if at all possible. Uh, users just sort of accept this is the way it is and it's easy to use, not so intrusive. But at the same time, I'm not giving up the kingdom uh, by, uh, you know, opening it up too much. If you know what I mean. So um, that that would be my final parting words. Chuck, did I get your final parting thought? You always <laughs> usually have one more. Can it, give, me, give me one more. And no, let me give you a little context here. Let's let's go back to the the theme today. Um, just something uh, regarding the remote workers. We talked a lot about VDI things like that. Anything you want to just a parting thought to your colleagues who are working on this issue and want to make sure their remote workers are secure. Well, I mean, I, I think the, the point is, Anthony, is it doesn't make any difference what environment that the, the, the people are working in, whether it's in the office, uh, in a physician practice, or in a hospital, or at home. Uh, we need to be aware of the fact that security is extremely important. And, you know, uh, 
every time that we think that uh, we have a system uh, tightened up and idiot proof, uh, somebody takes up the challenge. Uh, <laughs> and so I, I, I absolutely agree with Chris friends about, you know, we need to make sure that we test it, never assume that it is a hundred percent. You know, we, we take a very layered approach and now I'm trying to turn the network and the other pieces of technology into security uh, layers uh, as well. So never, ever, you know, always be looking over your shoulder because just, you know, I'm reminded of a friend of mine who was a deputy sheriff when I lived in Florida and I had just put a new front door in and had all the fancy latches and a three inch deadbolt. And he just laughed. And he, I said, why? He said, you think that's going to keep them out? I said, well, I hope so. And he said, and then he showed me a picture of a house that had been burgled the night before. Same kind of door. And it was in a V because the people went through the door so hard that it actually bent the door. He said, if they want in, they're going to get in. And I said, well, I just want them to slow down, slow them down long enough. Uh, for me to get my home defenses in place. Your home defenses. Yeah, it's like my good. dog. So. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, that's a, a perfect uh, ending. Uh, regarding continuing education, you could use the final slide in this deck for your CEU needs. You'll get an email when the on-demand recording of today, today's event is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team, and you can go to our website, to register for upcoming panels. With that, I want to thank our panel. Great discussion today. Chuck Christian, Chris Friends, and Chris Feeney. I want to thank IGEL for sponsoring and making the event possible. I want to thank you for attending. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you.